back to A Trip Through the Movies, this extra special episode. So I am Brianne McCann. Oh, and I'm John Blint. We have a very special guest with us today, Tyrell Listen. Tyrell, you want to say hello to everybody? Hey folks, how's this going? Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. So Tyrell is the host of the band A History, a wonderful podcast uh, going through the, the history of the band. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about that, Tyrell? Yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, you set it up very nicely, so I appreciate that. Yeah, we've, for the past two, almost three years, coming up in January, have uh, dived deep into the band's catalog from their inception and who they were as, you know, little kids, all the way up to where we currently are, which happens to coincide nicely with this episode, but through their careers and all the trials and tribulations that uh, that entailed being rock stars. Awesome. John, can you tell them what we're talking about today? Yeah, absolutely. So you may be wondering, you know, uh, first of all, uh, which band are you talking about, right? And because uh, the reason I mention this is because you'll learn as this episode progresses, I'm playing some sort of a a peasant role, if you will, today. Uh, I'll be talking to two people who are who are experts on this topic, and, and we're hoping to, to play into that dynamic some more so that you can learn more about this truly fascinating band. But I want to address the band's name is The Band, okay? For any newcomers that, that are not familiar, uh, maybe they just, you know, listen to, to our uh, podcast and, and are unfamiliar with that band. No, The Band's name is The Band. Uh, <laughs> so just know when we say The Band, that's who we're talking about. Anyways, today uh, we are talking about a different style uh, movie than uh, than our usual uh, episodes. We're talking about a concert movie called The Last Waltz that sort of breaks down some stories from the band and talks about and shows some songs from this huge concert that they held on Thanksgiving roughly, what, 45 years ago almost, right, Brie Tyrell? Yeah, roughly, I'd say. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not good at math. I'm. I'm good at the band, not good at math. Bree's yeah. weird with these yeah, kind roughly. of things. She's. She's. I don't know how you keep track of it, but I go on Twitter, and, and at least four times a day, I'll see like "Happy Birthday" to to this guy, and oh, 45 years ago today, this came out, and, and next week is going to be the 25th anniversary since I, I first played Bakugan. Whatever. <laughs> it's always some obscure <laughs> specific date. Um, but how, Brie, how do you keep track of all that? For, for, because I feel like a lot of people who, who, who follow us, they, they also follow you on Twitter. I know Tyrell follows you on Twitter as well. So, so Tyrell, I feel like this is, a, this is a valid question. How do you keep track of all that? I have lots of reminders in my phone. Mm-hmm. That's, that's literally the way that I do it. I'm sure Tyrell, you know, you keep track of lots of big dates too. That's a good way to do it. I'll be honest, I'm bad at it. You know, it's like say something happens with the band and it's like some big anniversary date coming up. I'm like, oh, it's like the night before or the morning of. I'm like, oh, I should probably make a post about this. I don't remember. I'm, I'm not very good at it. Not uh, I don't have the level of uh, detail and precision that you do. But uh, no dates, you know, got to use your fingers, got to do the math. It's a little tricky, but we get through it. So speaking of those important dates, as I mentioned, 45 years ago, the band held their huge concert, I believe their last concert, uh, called The Last Waltz, and they brought in all of these different musicians that you know really represented music and rock and roll at the time. And that's one thing that you'll sort of see as we talk about this, this piece of work, is that it's a really good 
capture of rock and roll and music at that time. And it really has a lot of talented people involved, involved both on the musical side of things as well as the uh, man behind the camera. And we will dive into that a little bit later. But for the two of you, I know that this, this piece means a lot. Um, and, and I want to ask, you know, Tyrell, you are actually doing uh, some episodes on this on your podcast on The Last Waltz. So, you know, can, can you start off and just tell me a little bit more about what it means to you and, uh, you know, what you've learned so far? Yeah, no, The Last Waltz um, is an interesting piece for a lot of different reasons. It means a lot because as a film lover, first and foremost, um, and as somebody who loves documentary film, it is very groundbreaking in that respect in terms of this rockumentary style of documentary filmmaking. Uh, we've seen concert films before, but this kind of elevates it to a certain degree. Uh, and we have a lot of different things at play from, you know, that concert capture, interviews, all these kind of additional pieces um, that make it really interesting. Uh, it obviously is a celebration of, you know, my favorite group of all time and, you know, kind of the selflessness of the group to include all these other heavy hitters in the show and back them so well uh, in, in multiple instances. But it's also a complex film for a lot of reasons for band fans. Um, you know, there's a lot of myth and narrative built around The Last Waltz, which makes it awesome because there's a lot to unpack. But, you know, there's some people, including myself, can have somewhat of a love-hate relationship with it and certain choices it makes sometimes. So it's it's complex. It's riveting. Uh, it's really engaging and it never really gets old. I've watched it, you know, hundreds of times and every time there's always something new you can kind of go back to and, and look for. So, yeah. And Bree, would you like to add your perspective on this? Because I read, per usual, I read Bree's Letterboxd review after I watched the movie because she always gets it done before I do. And uh, there was some pretty interesting stuff there. And I could tell that it has a huge impact. So Bree, can you tell me your side of this? Sure. Uh, it's very hard to follow Tyrell uh, without just repeating what he said about this. Um, but just to kind of reiterate the idea of like that complexity is you know a big thing for me you know i have the similar love-hate relationship um with it but it always ends up winning out with the love in the end you know i have a lot of problems with it and i could i could sit there and go through that but i think the thing that, that just kind of overpowers you is the love that is there in that moment for the music and for everything that's going on and i think that's really kind of the, the biggest thing about it is i've never seen kind of a testament to I don't know, like human emotion and music together that is quite as good and as, as impactful and lasting as The Last Waltz. So the two of you mentioned this love-hate relationship that you seem to have with The Last Waltz. And I find that really interesting because, as I mentioned, I have had very little previous exposure to the band. I've listened to a song here or there, I think two songs that uh, that Bree has sent to me whenever I was asking just for, for some different uh, songs from that time period. And, you know, I really enjoyed them. But when we went into this one and we decided, hey, let's talk about The Last Waltz, I, I had to ask. I was like, you know, Bree, do you think I should I should listen to some more of the band and, and get more involved? And that way, whenever we, we go to, to talk about it, there, there's a little uh, I have a little more to talk about, right? A little more to say. But then we decided, no, let's go in blind. Let's make this, you know, my first true exposure to the band. So you guys mentioned this love-hate relationship. And I got to say, I 
I don't understand it, right? And that's because I, I think because I am so new to the, to the band. You know, for me, I just saw great camera work, these fantastic shots, uh, great sets. You know, this this unification of love amongst musicians, and I I don't understand the the love hate relationship. So I'm really interested. You know, for for any other uh, listeners out there who are in my position. Uh, why do you two say that there's a love-hate relationship with this piece? Listen, there's no denying that it's one of the greatest documentaries of all time and that people love it. And there's everything to love in it. Like, there's a reason why it's in the Library of Congress, um, the National Film Registry, all these things uh, constantly cited as for multiple different things. But, like, from a fan perspective, um, I think the best term to use is baggage. Like, if you know anything about the band like you would know about anything, you you come into the film like The Last Waltz, which is at the end of a period in the band's history. And you can't forget about all of the things that led up to that moment. So, you know, inner strife between band members and how that kind of plays out, not very um, in your face in the film, but there is some, you know, some sub, some, um, what's the word, subcontext there for it. Uh, and... Just how Scorsese and uh, Robbie uh, Robertson, who's in the band and also one of the producers on the film, decided to go about editing certain things in the film, um, you know, leaves some things to be desired, I think. Uh, you could definitely, and I don't think Robbie would deny this either, and it's not a bad thing, but I think he really tried to utilize this film as a, a star vehicle for himself to launch a career in Hollywood after this, and it didn't really work out for him but he tried with this film um so i think that's why some people have a love-hate relationship with it but again i think there's a lot more that love wins out you know that's the that's the recurring theme but that's you know not to go so deep into it but i think that's that's where you can start to maybe understand why there would be a little bit of a love uh love hate um but i would never really get overly hooked up on it because i think for new listeners or new fans or whatever, it's a great place to start and it's a great place to return to even when you know more because uh, it's it's awesome. You can't beat the musicianship in it. You know, and, and despite that love-hate relationship, uh, this, this movie does have a lot of love and especially from what seems to be, I don't want to say a critical standpoint, but a, but almost, you know, a critical standpoint, you know, when when Brie introduced this this documentary to me, she said, no, this is considered to be like the concert, uh, you know, do documentary, like the best representation of music and film. And I, I was, you know, doing some reading on this after we watched or after I watched. And that's a very shared opinion. Rolling Stone itself is saying this. So, Brie, it, it's time, man. It's time to, to back that argument. I want to hear your thoughts, and I, I think the people at home do too. So specifically my thoughts on if it's the, the greatest rock documentary of all time? Yes, and why. And why? Ooh, okay. Yes. I mean, short and simple, I think it is. I've watched a lot of rockumentaries in my time, and there's just nothing that compares to the sheer power of the band. And the first time I watched it, I was still very early into, you know, my, my time with the band. Um, and I still got that feeling for the first time I watched it. 
So I do think it is. It's the because it's the single greatest concert I think that's ever occurred. And so it's this incredibly artfully filmed uh, and edited testament to the greatest concert of all time. So just logically, I guess I'm speaking like a lawyer here, but just logically, it has to be the greatest rockumentary of all time. Tyrell, anything you'd add to that point? Yeah, you know, I can echo a lot of that sentiment. Like I've watched, you know, a lot of rockumentaries. That's my forte. Like I like that style of thing. I like a lot of great bands. A lot of great people have tried to do something similar to Last Waltz. There's nothing really like it. There's a reason why it is what it is. Um, and the kind of eclectic mix of performers. Like from one hand, you have somebody like Ronnie Hawkins, who is, you know, from this rockabilly tradition and very like hard and, you know, Southern. And then the next moment you have like, I don't know, Neil Diamond, who's not like that at all. So it's like, you have this great mix, but it, it works throughout the film. And the band is full of characters that help interweave the piece together. Robbie Robertson is very different than Levon Helm to Garth Hudson to Rick Danko and Richard Manuel. And it's fun to see how different everybody is, but collectively how it kind of creates this, you know, pleasurable sonic experience, I guess, for lack of a better way of saying it. Um, and that is what makes it dazzling every single time. And I don't know. There's You can't really explain it. There's no words. It's an experience. It's a viscerality that only film can give you. And that's what The Last Waltz is from the first title card. Like, this film should be played loud. Like, you know, from that moment, you're in for a trip. We, we should have prefaced the episode by saying that this podcast should be played loud. But also, I don't know if that's a good idea. <laughs> do you, do you, would Maybe you guys not. do you guys listen to your podcast loud? I don't know. I'm always blasting Tyrell's podcast, like the oh, neighbors can hear it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's hey. If you have a you know a musical quality to your voice, I guess you should be blasting it loud. I think we create a nice triad harmony here, so might as well play it loud. We'll have to we'll have to reconvene sometime and and see if we can harmonize some of the band's music once <laughs> I listen to it a little bit more. <laughs> but before I, before I get too sidetracked, um, you know, it, it is considered to be one of the the best uh, concert uh, pieces of film. And you know, when we find out that Martin Scorsese was the one who directed this, I'm sure a lot of people who know film think, oh, well, then that makes sense. Now. You know, typically if you know a trip to the movies and you know our standard breakdown style, you'd know that this is the part where either Brie or I would ramble on about the director and their life and why they're so cool and geek out a little bit and you'd roll your eyes and say, eh, whatever. But I think this week we're going to try something a little bit different. So, you know, be on your toes because it's about to get crazy. But um, this story of how Scorsese interacts with the band and this concert is absolutely fascinating. And Tyrell and Bree, I, I think that the two of you would would be much better than me to take this away. And I will chime in because I have thoughts on, on uh, uh, some challenges that I think Scorsese faced um, in this process. And I'm very excited to talk about them. But uh, why don't you guys, why don't you guys get that started? Well, I think, you know, obviously Martin Scorsese is an American legend, uh, one of the finest directors of all time. I think particularly from Robbie's perspective when he decided that, you know, he might want to do a concert film 
again, it started simply as a concert and it started growing. And then it was like, well, maybe we document this. And then it was like, no, not, we don't document this. We make this like an experience. Uh, so you're looking for, you know, a muscle to kind of help you get that there. And, uh, even though Scorsese is short in stature, he is big in big in brain and he has, he has ideas. So I think, a lot of the guys in the band were movie lovers. Robbie and Richard in particular really liked going to the movies together and they have that kind of filmic quality to their writing. And Scorsese had come off a pretty hot streak and was kind of the new darling on the scene with films like Mean Streets. And, you know, his use of music from a very early point in his movie career was an important element of his movie making. Um, so I think approaching somebody like Scorsese who has that vision, who has that sense and love of the music was important. I don't think the band would have chosen a director that didn't particularly like their music, A, but also just didn't have an appreciation for music as a whole. Uh, that level of knowledge in music was something that the band always surrounded them, themselves with in every kind of, you know, role in in their like operation from their manager to the producer they're picking to record their music it was a tight circle and that person needed to fit in and you know understand immediately what they were trying to do and Scorsese had a knack for just like all those meticulous details and I think Robbie wanted to hand the film to somebody that could do that and they could be a little bit more hands-off and focus on the performance so from a starting point I think it made sense for Scorsese to really come on board it made sense for where the band was at and also made sense for where you know Martin Scorsese was at at that time too and, and real quickly just to add to Tyrell's point before we got to Ubri, I I remember thinking the same thing and again my first exposure to the band but you know I, I'm a journalist that, that's sort of my mindset um, whenever I, I'm watching a documentary is what, what were these interviews like you know uh, how did how do they get that information and all I can think the whole time is these guys are fantastic storytellers they knew exactly what needed to go in there but at the same time it's funny because you see Scorsese in some of these shots and he's just like, as you mentioned, small in stature compared to them. You know, he seems like a shyer guy uh, compared to these huge outgoing personalities. At least that's how they're depicted. Um, and it's fascinating to watch that that chemistry throughout the, 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 the film. And I, I just remember thinking, you know, these these nuggets that they're sharing are fantastic. Um, the, the stories that, that come out of this film are, are so interesting. And as someone who you know, again, ha had no exposure to them hearing those those small little stories, you know, about how they got their name and, and things like that when they stole baloney. It's it's the things like that. I, I, I really am excited to dive more into them and hear that next song because it's they're not just they're not just music at that point. You know, they they, they have so much more to them. And yeah, I think it's a perfect mix because, you know, Scorsese is one of the best storytellers that we that we have seen. And I think that I think that will always be the case. I think he will always be uh, regarded as one of the best storytellers of film. And you have these guys who are just very clearly, you know, you, you can almost hear the conversations of them sitting around a room sharing these stories. And as you mentioned, you know, maybe that wasn't all uh always the case. You guys mentioned some some strife going on there. But, you know, for me, that's what it feels like. And. I just cannot think of a better dynamic. Now, with that being said, because Scorsese seems so shy and these guys are so outgoing, there are a couple times where I feel like I would have loved to just watch him try to control them 
in these interviews, not necessarily like suppress them, but you know, that you watch them feed off each other and it gets so energetic and it's like, oh man, you got this shy guy sitting there like, how did, how did he pull that off? How does he keep them like, all right guys, yeah, yeah, I get what you're saying, but like, let's go back to here. And I, I like to think, I don't know if this is the case, but I like to pretend at one point he just gave up and he was like, all right, I'm just going to watch him talk. I'm just going to shoot them talking because, I, you know, it just works that way. Bree, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have too much to add. I think both of you make excellent points about the fact that Scorsese really is the perfect director for this. You know, not only because he is just on his own such a great storyteller, but because he did have such a love for the band. And it seems like such a reverence, basically, for everybody that was there that night. It becomes so, so clear in the way that you know, they film things and the way that they edit things and, you know, the way that the camera will linger on, you know, I was really noticing that last night with uh, the Muddy Waters performance that the camera just reverently is on Muddy Waters the whole time and things like that, that only comes from somebody who kind of understands the gravity of what's happening, not just as a filmmaker, but as a music lover. And so, you know, I think that's a really great point. And like, like you brought up too, John, just kind of having Scorsese there cultivating storytelling from such naturally gifted storytellers is what makes this something so much more than just a movie or a concert. Like it really is. It's an experience. It's one of a kind. Now I mentioned that, that Rolling Stone piece earlier, and I just wanted to share, you know, a, a, a an expert or an excerpt of that um, to, to sort of, I think does a really good job of, of painting the, this situation. And it says that Scorsese was neck deep in finishing New York, New York at this time. And, you know, if you guys uh, want to talk, feel free, because I can't see you on my screen anymore. <laughs> it's, uh, but uh, he was finishing New York, New York at the time, and his ill-fated attempt to fuse old Hollywood musicals and new Hollywood revisionism when Robertson and Taplin approached him. The last thing he wanted to do uh, or was allowed to do by his producers was take on another project before he delivered a final cut. Uh, but the notion of being president something symbolizing the sun setting on Rock's unruly early adulthood and with a guest list that read like a who's who of modern popular music was an offer he could not refuse. Uh, I don't have a choice, Robertson quotes him as saying in the oral history, Bill Graham presents, I must do it. What a cool story. Like, can you imagine? You're Martin Scorsese right now. And like you have this, you know, it feels like, it feels like a Woodstock to an extent, you know, like a, is that fair? Well, cause I, I mean, the boat, the two of you, very big sixties music fans, I, I'm, I'm sure. Um, is that fair? Is that a fair assumption to make? This is in a way, a more formal Woodstock. It's a conclusion. It's a conclusion of the era. I think in a, in a lot of, a lot of ways, um, you know, I think there was a lot of uh, positivity and enlightenment with Woodstock and ushering in kind of that musical and cultural revolution. But in a lot of ways, The Last Waltz kind of represents the excesses of that and how that once, you know, big dream kind of got crushed a little bit by reality because you you can see that well you know there are a lot of positive parts about the last waltz you see that one of the main things the last waltz is about is how the music and the success and the culture around it started to crush people you know robbie mentions people dying around him 
people that were at that festival, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix. And he was scared, at least he said he was scared of being next or somebody in the band being next. Um, so in a lot of ways, yeah, it is a kind of spiritual successor, but it's also cyclical. It's like the return, you know, almost a decade later. And I don't know, there's a lot to unpack there, right? The good and, and the bad, but yeah. How could Scorsese turn that down? Like it, the guest list was crazy. They really, um, lobbied for him. They took him out to dinner multiple times. Uh, Robbie did in LA. He is under a lot of stress. New York, New York, his first large budget film, which was becoming a disaster. And this was something that, you know, a, like a piece of candy and a story that he wanted, but he couldn't have. His mom told him no, but he wanted it anyway. So he was going to kind of do anything he could to do it, which I'm glad he did because it's the risk that, you know, paid off, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, you know, you, you read something like that and it feels like, you know, if you could take a photo of the, you know, musical equivalent to, I don't want to say signing the Declaration of Independence because it, it, it isn't really that, as you mentioned, it is a much darker moment. But you know what I mean? It, it is something of, of that high of significance uh, in, in musical history, I, I think. And uh, yeah, I just think, I think it's really interesting to, to see this, this fit. And I think the dynamic was perfect. And I don't think that, that anyone could have done a better job. But to play devil's advocate, the two of you know, both know film very well, and you both know the, the band very well. Any other directors you would have liked to see take this project? Not saying Scorsese did a bad job. He kills it. It's beautiful. And I, as you mentioned, it's an experience. And Bree, you could go first. Uh, it's an experience more than anything. So, you know, I, I have to ask, who else do you think could have could have maybe created a an equally enjoyable or maybe equally impactful experience? That's a big one. Yeah. Oh, no. Bree, go ahead. Give, okay. give it give it your best go. This is a tough one. I will I will fall on the on the sword first on this one. That is a really, really, really good question. Um, I think, geez, man, John, you're going to be a killer journalist. You're going to get some real gotcha journalism here. The only person that's coming to mind uh, would be D.A. Pennebaker, who did, you know, like Dylan's Don't Look Back um, and, and some other it, Monterey Pop, like other festival movies. Um, but even then... I still think Scorsese would be the best because Scorsese achieves a level of intimacy that, you know, sometimes I feel like Penna Baker maybe doesn't get, but geez, that's a good question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, similar, the Maisels uh, who did um, Gimme Shelter and stuff, they, they were known in that period too of being these great kind of documentarians. The interesting thing though is, Scorsese wasn't known as a documentarian like before this really, right? So that gets me thinking, well, I don't know if they would have opted to go for kind of documentary filmmakers or people that typically were making documentaries. So it's like, well, what other kind of new Hollywood directors were kind of hitting the scene around that time or would have maybe had something? You could look at maybe Altman. You could look at, uh, you could look at Francis Ford Coppola different but has a similar type of vibe or kind of backlog of a of a career um 
I know Robbie probably would have looked a little bit more to uh, Europe, probably, honestly, just given his love of French filmmakers um, and other European filmmakers. I wouldn't be surprised if we found a, a director out of Europe either. I think that that's a really interesting point. Um, you know, thinking about Scorsese not as, you know, a, a documentary director at that time. So you know, I feel like that that's that's a really interesting point because when you look at these musicians they are very clearly all about the art side of things right every single person there from muddy waters to the band themselves like everyone there it's about the art i think and you would probably see them draw drawn towards directors that are focused more on art and less documenting the time so i think that that makes a ton of sense you know like as i mentioned in documentaries, there is a journalistic side of things, but that does not mean we're artists. <laughs> you know, uh, we, I, I'm certainly not. Um, but I, I can totally see that, and maybe that's the best way to do it. You know, combine art with art to to truly document it the way that it's meant to be recorded. And uh, I, I think that that was that was done very well here. Yeah, yeah, John. First of all, you can be you can be an artist with the pen or or the keyboard okay so don't worry about that um but i think we need to take into consideration too like this is a good train of thought because documentary doesn't necessarily always need you know to be people oftentimes correlate documentary with truth and we know that's not necessarily the case um something of a more modern example like you know you definitely can have your biases and frame the story like you could look at um uh, what's his name? I'm blanking. Michael Moore and his kind of documentaries, they definitely have an angle that they're going for uh, as as is any director um, or documentarian. And they definitely were trying to go for an angle with this and try to tell a very particular story. And Scorsese was able to do that. And they were trying to push the fold, too. I think what was really important and that we can talk about as well is like, they weren't also just trying to do this concert to end it. Like when they really started thinking about doing the film, they're like, how can we just like one up everybody who's ever done something like this before? The band weren't really show offy, you know, they were the opposite. Um, they weren't the stones or the Beatles where they're like, look at us and like this commercial success and our wealth and our prestige. The band was kind of opposite of that. Um, but Robbie really wanted to kind of show off. So, you know, they pushed it. They didn't use 16 millimeter film, which was common for that type of thing. They used 35 millimeter film, which had never been done, and they experienced tons of issues. They didn't just hire one of the best cinematographers in uh, in cinema history. In well, originally I believe it was Vilmo Sigmund that was on board, but they also got Michael Chapman and Laszlo Kovacs, who collectively have done *Raging Bull*. Easy Rider, Five Easy Pieces, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. They got Boris Levin, who is like the best production designer of like all time, like West Side Stories on a music. Like they were really trying to go for it in a way that uh, was unlike them, but was super welcome. And they needed somebody to match that. And Scorsese was doing that. He was young. He was hungry. He was cocky. You got to have to be if you want to be one of the best. And that's why it worked, too. I don't know if another director would have really kind of given it that much, you know. So I think those things are interesting to look at as well. Tyrell, you mentioned them going all out on this. And I just wanted to point out, because this is, of course, a, a film podcast, um, that 
they they actually pulled from a lot of uh, a lot of film uh, in, in the actual production design uh, and the set design uh, of the concert. They borrowed sets from the San Francisco Opera House production of La Traviata, and they included chandeliers used in Gone with the Wind. Uh, so that's that's huge. A nice little nice little call to some movies here. We were very music based today, so you know I just wanted to point those out. But you know I think we we've talked about. Uh, extensively, you know, what went into this, right? But I think now, and Bree, I think you would be the perfect person to start this off. Uh, I think let's start talking a little bit about that experience. And, uh, you know, we can just go right down the line and, and break it down sort of uh, piece by piece. Like I said, there's not really a plot for this one for us to break down. So let's just go by the moments. And Bree, if you want to start that off, feel free. Absolutely. Uh, this really is a movie made in the moments. And I think that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, so it does, it starts with the title card, this film should be played loud. And then the first scene is actually pretty quiet. Rick Danko at a pool table. And I think that juxtaposition is phenomenal. It is a, it's a great moment. And the juxtaposition though, I think is something that the film does well multiple times throughout the film. And that's what makes it cool. It doesn't really take you on the same it doesn't take you on a trajectory that you think it's always going to take you. And going from that title card to that Rick Danko moment, it's quiet, but it's also loud in like it's flamboyantness. Like it's Rick Danko dressed to the nines. Like he's some mobster and he's like, we're going to play cutthroat. And it's like, he explains the rules of this game and it's like, okay. And then he does it. And right when that ball hits all the others, it's like, wow, boom, we're in this moment. And it's don't do it, which is super sexy and things like that. But like, he plays with you. Scorsese isn't just going to give you immediately what you want. So I think right from the beginning, like you're saying, Bri, it's like this, this, he kind of creates this moment right off the hop. And that's the hook that you need, right? You need that hook to really sell you the film at the beginning. Right. And with that, that card at the beginning, it's like, oh, you know, you got to play this loud, followed by that, that subversion of expectations oh man i sound like ryan johnson there um, but you know you have all that and i think oh, the opening for this is just perfect you know all the way up until you get to the actual title screen where you have these uh these waltzing dancers panning across well not panning but like sliding across the screen like a wipe transition almost and uh i love that it's just it, and it's interesting because they're almost ballroom-like. And then you, you just came out of this performance that feels nowhere close to a ballroom scene. You know, it's it, it's it's bluesy. It's rock and roll at the time. So I'm curious, like, why why take it in that direction? You know, and it's just like it really, it really drew me in, right? As someone who had never seen this before, I'm like, okay, clearly by what these guys are playing, this is what they stand for. And then it's the last waltz. And it's like, hmm. I wonder why why you sort of take that that aspect and maybe the two of you have that answer. Bree, go for it. Oh boy. I mean, kind of my interpretation of that was always just kind of that subversion of expectations. You know, they were trying to create a real experience and with the last waltz the event they did that, you know, and I'll kind of defer to you to talk a little bit more about like the event itself Tyrell, but like it does. It goes from this quiet moment 
into don't do it which like especially whenever their names come up i don't know why i think that's the coolest thing in the world like i know their names but i'm like richard manuel wonderful like put that name up on screen but like that's so cool and then it transitions into this again another kind of a quiet moment with the last waltz theme where you're seeing san francisco and you're seeing the ballroom dancers so it really is just kind of this like in and out up and down that is something that's kind of indicative of the band for me that they had so many different styles going on they could be loud they could be quiet they could be sweet they could be like crazy and rambunctious i think that that's kind of a cool way to blend it all in like a five minute introduction and it's interesting too because because there's the event and john for you and and folks that don't know the 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 background because why would you because it's crazy and there's all this extra stuff but it was it was take it took place on american thanksgiving they had a ballroom they had hired ballroom dancers and encouraged dancing on the floor they had a full turkey dinner with like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of pounds of food that they brought in it was an event and you know they wanted it really kind of fed into robbie's access of like Ooh, we've got to make this very luxurious and we've got to give it a waltz and we've got to do all this like you know in a lot of ways the kind of the gaudiness of it and the you know the luxury of it <laughs> gives you a pretty good commentary into why it all kind of falls down because not the film but like the era as a whole and maybe why they're calling it quits in this iteration because that kind of level of access is you know, it's bad after a while, right? And you get a lot of that right from the start. You're going all over the place. It probably also doesn't help that all of them were doing copious amounts of cocaine and probably couldn't keep focused on something long enough when they're editing this film together. But that's kind of part of the magic, right? Like, we kind of accept that, and it's still cool. Was it always completely intended? I'm not entirely sure, but it makes for a cool experience, and it's good music, so it doesn't really matter in the end, you know? I think that, you know, another important aspect of this um, that, that I think clearly demonstrates the, the combination of, of all the efforts uh, in, in this work is that scene, well, these shots, not the scene, the shots of San Francisco, you know, directly, it's either directly before or directly after the, the title card and those ballroom dancers. Um, I just remember thinking, like, I was like, I don't know anything about these guys, but I feel like these shots... And sort of they're not perfectly clean. They're not exactly, you know, showing the filthiest parts of the city or anything like that. And I'm, I just, there's something about them that I feel like I'm like, okay, I, I know what I'm in for. And it was just these brief seconds of San Francisco. And I'm just like, yeah, I, I, I know completely what to expect now. And, uh, you know, the other side of that is immediately I, I'm thinking, I knew Scorsese was in charge of this going in. And the first thing I'm thinking is, oh, they, these are taxi driver shots, man. These, that's like, <laughs> these, this is it. Um, so, yeah, I just, what a strong opening. I mean, that's, that's all there is to it. It keeps on getting better, too, because Bree could, we could agree with me here, too. It's like, it goes into arguably two of their strongest songs ever after that, Up on Cripple Creek, The Shape I'm In. Um, like, these are defining band songs. So, you're hooking them right off the bat. And then you bring out your first performer, Ronnie Hawkins, who really lets you in 
because that they started with Ronnie Hawkins. That's why that was one of the first stops in their journey before before Dylan, before their own independent success. It was Ronnie Hawkins, and he helped cut those guys' teeth. It's that was their version of uh, the Beatles, like Hamburg going to Germany and things like that. Like this, Ronnie Hawkins was that for them, and it was a great way to thank their old master for helping them, you know, along the way. But it's also an electric performance. Like it's just only somebody like Ronnie Hawkins could probably pull that off. It's crazy. It's messy, but it's tight. It's uh, funny, um, but it's serious as well. So it's like all of these things and. You're not really expecting it, and it, it works really well. Yeah, I absolutely agree with Tyrell on that. It, it does really kind of just go straight in uh, for the throat up on Cripple Creek. Um, and then The Shape I'm In, you know, I, I have seen that particular performance of The Shape I'm In uh, several times at this point, and it gets me every single time. Like, whenever that spotlight hits Richard for the first time, the way that stage, and he just starts going, like it's incredible you you even if you don't know that song the moment it starts with again with the way that it's staged you feel like you're right in the middle of it you, you know your toe starts tapping it, it's really something quite special and it just starts that momentum up and goes perfectly into that ronnie hawkins performance um which is, is such a cool full circle moment and i genuinely can't describe it any any better than tyrell did and all of its contradictions then it goes though like it's crazy because it goes from ronnie hawkins um to um the the great one of the defining performances i think of the entire thing it makes no difference rick danko's ballad so again when we talk about juxtaposition we go from this really you know these raunchy heavy rock and roll kind of moments to like this beautiful ballad piece with rick danko and you're like wow this guy can this guy can sing and Garth gets out there with the saxophone. You're like, well, what is this? It's cool. And then you get poetry too with Michael McClure. It's it's right after that, the Canterbury uh, Tales. Um, I, you know, I John, like, what do you think of this? Like, to me, it's I'm used to it now because I've watched it a million times and I get the context. But like, what the heck's going through your head when you all of a sudden are now seeing some guy recite poetry on? Like, what, like what what's going on? See, that's a, that's a good question, but it, I, I didn't have any noteworthy thoughts because it was just I sort of I, I sort of knew, right? You know, it, it was just like with that opening, I was like, okay, these like they're in it for the they're in it for the art, they're in it for the. You could tell very very easily off the beginning, right? Right, like this is an experience, right? This is meant to just, as you mentioned, they were they were splurging on this, they were going all out, and. You can just tell. I, I, and I didn't know that up until we talked today. But, you know, it, it came up and I was like, yeah, he's yeah, sure. He's saying poetry. It's just like I was just there for it. You know, it didn't it didn't even I, I didn't even second uh, second think it like it was no, no doubt. Just in my didn't mind. Go the journey. Yeah, it just belonged there. You know what I mean? I was just like, I'm here for this. I, I, and yeah. I, I was expecting it happened so quickly, too. You know, it's just like you don't really get a second to process it either. And it's not a bad thing. Um, but, yeah, really, really sort of just – it just fits. It just fits. I think everything in this movie fits. Uh, and I, that's that's what works so perfectly about it because I went in sort of wanting a narrative, you know, a, a an explanation as to who these guys are and how they came to be and everything like that. And I got that explanation through these excerpts 
these small little mm-hmm. slices of, of everything like this, including the poetry. And, you know, it just, it makes sense. They, you don't, it, it's a, it's a show, not tell, you know, it's as simple as, as that sounds. This, this is the epitome of that 100%. This, this truly represents that I think. And, and I think it's through everything that they include. But yeah, I, I didn't even think twice about it. Yeah. So following that, you know, that, that, that poetry and, and those great performances that really get the ball rolling, uh, the waltz rolling, I should say, <laughs> um, is <laughs> thank God Tyrell, you know, is, is one for sappy humor. <laughs> we could have brought him on. He just leaves. He just leaves the, the <laughs> podcast. He's done with us. Anyways, I appreciate it. <laughs> um, I mentioned earlier, you know, when you're, you know, a journalist or I feel like a documentary documentary maker, um, even in TV and broadcast, like I've been trained in school to to just search for those nuggets, those stories that you're not going to find anywhere else that aren't in basic interviews. Like, how do you make yours stand out? And one of the ones that made me realize what this was going to be and that this was going to be filled with those was the story that the band tells about. They, the time that they performed in this raggedy club where there were hardly any people there and they exaggerated a little bit and they have fun with it. But then we learn that that club was owned by Jack Ruby who killed Lee Harvey Oswald. Like, that's crazy. And it got me wondering, okay, do you think, do you think there's some JFK and the band conspiracy theories out there? Because there's there hundreds. Be. Yeah. I texted her last night and I said, do you think, do you think if I asked that question, Tyrell will be cool with it? She's like, "Eh, you'd probably be fine. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like, I feel like, you know, there could, there could be a plot that was hatched and actually Garth, the silent one was the killer (laughs) after all, a bunch of Canadians coming down and, and, and being responsible in this whole JFK conspiracy, you know, it would be, uh, it would be something. I, you know what? There's probably, there's got to be some connection. There's got to be, I haven't seen it. And I, I felt like I've read a lot of JFK conspiracy, but uh, that's a good one, John. Maybe you should write a book about that and uh, it'd be a New York Times bestseller. I actually, as soon as I thought of that question last night, I Googled it and I was like, I, I searched Jack Ruby, the band, <laughs> just to try to get more so that I could narrow down my searches um, to, to, find more information and like I was like there's got to be a conspiracy theory out there I just got to find it um but all that I was able to find was a band called Jack Ruby uh, and it's just like I was like man the band really did not think SEO was going to be a thing I know right <laughs> um but, but anyways you know I don't want to go off uh get to get too distracted here but yeah it's really cool stuff um you know let's let's keep let's keep it rolling such a night, you know, if after after something like Jack Ruby, uh, where they might have had multiple interesting nights at that club. But uh, you have Dr. John, who I think really represents in a lot of ways, um, a lot of the kind of swankier side of the band's music, the New Orleans influence. Um, they work a lot with Alan Toussaint and Alan Toussaint and Dr. John work together. And Such a Night is an understated moment in the film, but it's a very brilliant moment. Dr. John playing the piano, singing. It's, it's, it's a really interesting moment. But like again, with that juxtaposition, you go to Helpless, Neil Young. I know, Brie, one of your favorites there. Happy birthday, Neil. Another Canadian. Uh, 
interesting moment, like very different with Helpless. And then, but I think what's really cool is you have Stage Right, which is a band number, but you also have a studio rendition because you had a whole studio portion of the film that wasn't live, but in an MGM soundstage afterwards with the Staple Singers. And I think this really shows what the band is trying to do here. And it's trying to show all of their influences. They're a roots rock group. The roots comes from all of the different type of music they're pulling from, whether it's, you know, jazz and some of the swankier stuff down in New Orleans to a lot of the black R&B influence to the Canadian influence with Neil Young. So it's like you're really kind of seeing that threaded through the film. It's not in your face. They're not telling you it, but it's there. Brie? Yeah, I think that's a really great point. It really is such a subtle way that they do it that maybe you don't pick up on if you're not, you know, super well-versed with the band. But, like, they do. They kind of combine everything. Like you said, that swanky New Orleans sound with Dr. John into that just lovely performance of Helpless uh, with Neil Young. Again, happy birthday, Neil, wherever you are. Uh, but just that wonderful kind of way that they incorporate that and, you know, just kind of the common thread through all of that is seeing everybody just kind of have fun. You know, everybody's just having a good time and then into stage fright, which my single favorite shot in the film is that moment that spotlight appears on Rick Dango. Like, I think that's incredible. And again, really a testament to, to Scorsese kind of knowing what he's doing. And then, like you mentioned, it goes into, you know, after that little bit where, they're talking about the name of the band and, you know, Richard's like, oh, we're the band. And then it goes right into the wait. I, I can't even like what to even say about that performance of the wait at this point. Yeah, it's for some context for listeners, the wait, which is arguably it is. There's no arguing. It's like the biggest band song. It features a very distinct harmony. And in the chorus, they do the three part run and Throughout the song, you're also introduced to their harmony type singing, which is very different than, say, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, which is like a very perfect triad harmony where everybody's singing very in unison. The band opts for a looser harmony, which is equally as interesting, but in a different way where they kind of like leap over each other or they come in at slightly different times. And a lot of their harmony approach came from the staple singers who were one of the greatest influences on the band and to have the staples there with the band performing their biggest song is a legendary moment. It's also a turning point in the film because we're not on the stage of the concert anymore. We're in a soundstage and that changes things up. It changes the dynamic up a little bit, but like that is really kind of the middle point of the film. Uh, I think there's around 25 performances and this is, sits around like 10 or 11. So give or take math, uh, it's kind of somewhere in the middle of the in the film. So I think it's an interesting moment. But like, if you think it's the coolest moment, you go into the night they drove old Dixie down, which is one of their biggest songs as well. Maybe their second biggest song of all time. And you have Levon Helm delivering the vocal performance of his life. It is loaded. It is a song that in a large part is about Levon's life. He is the only American in the group. He is a Southerner. Uh, the night they drove old Dixie down grapples with the issues of the Confederacy. And interestingly, what do a bunch of Canadians have to say really about that? But that's what makes the song interesting. It's not an anthem for the Confederacy. Really, it's 
uh, a damning testament of what happened and nobody was better to sing it than somebody like Levon Helm and he kind of knows that this is his moment in the movie to show that you know he is the heart of the band if if somebody like Richard's the soul and somebody like Garth is the brain it's like Levon is the heart and he wears it on his sleeve in this performance you know Tyrell it's funny that you mentioned that the weight you said that was sort of the band song like that's the, yeah. the song uh yeah because i i actually took note that like this was the point in, in the movie where i was sold uh you know i listened to the the first few songs in the first half and i'm like i'm digging this this is i like their style i like the way they sound you know this is, i like this kind of music um so i was all for it you know I, I was loving the the way that it was shot everything like that and you know we get to this point in the movie and it it wasn't the weight that you know the weight was uh was the the final nail for me but right before that you get stage fright and you know as Bree mentioned there's that shot where it's just a black stage and a single spotlight on the singer and i don't know the members of the band yet so you know don't chastise me too much here but i'm <laughs> trying um but you know the singer under that spotlight and the line is you know he got caught in the spotlight and it's just it's, it looks so good. It sounds so good. You know, it, you could never have seen these guys before. This could be that scene alone could be your first exposure to the band. Yeah. And yeah. It, it's perfect. And then follow that by the weight. I was I was like, yep, I'm in. I'm all I'm all on the board. It's like stage frights the first punch. The weight's the second. And the third is that night they drove old Dixie down and that's the final like oof like you could end the f film after that they don't but you could because it's just like whoa like how could you get any better than this it's kind of that middle part apex and then you kind of have to wind up again which is super cool because then you go into some interesting performances with dry your eyes neil diamond coyote Joni mitchell dry your eyes i don't know if you want to touch on that brie that's kind of um let's just say a controversial inclusion, Neil Diamond, just in terms of how he sits with the other guests and his relation to the band. John, for you, most of these artists uh, had prior experience with the band, either collaborating on albums together, working together. Neil Diamond didn't have that. So with Dry Your Eyes, it's kind of like, I think here's a really hot tip for uh, all the listeners out there who are going to watch this movie. This is the perfect washroom break in the film. Like if you want to go to the washroom somewhere in the middle of the movie, you pick Neil Diamond's Dry Your Eyes because you just came off of that stunning three piece. Now it's like, okay, I can slip out for a little bit and then come back in time for Canadian sweetheart, Joni Mitchell. I completely agree. That's actually what I did last night as I went and made myself a <laughs> cup of hot chocolate during Neil Diamond. In my notes, I wrote, we cut out Bobby Charles for this, you know, like things like that. It's, it's fun. Like not to hate on Neil Diamond, you know, for some reason, a big Neil Diamond fan listens. I don't want my name to be on your list, but like it does, it just doesn't really fit. Yeah. Neil Diamond could have picked a better song. Dry Your Eyes was a co-write with Robbie Robertson, but Neil Diamond has some material that's excellent that could have fit, fit better here. But Joni Mitchell's an interesting inclusion too, a fellow Canadian. Um, Cody is a storytelling song. It, it very much feels in line with a lot of the band's uh, work, and that's kind of fun. And seeing them back her is, is really great. And, you know, she's really one of the only, you know, we have this, this part of the staple singers. We got Joni and then we got Emmy Lou later, but like she's part of the women represented and like 
who better is one of the greatest songwriters of all time sharing the stage with the band and really kind of giving a performance there. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I love, love, love that moment. Um, and during Helpless too earlier, whenever she appears, you know, backstage and is singing. But I think one of the, the cool things that Scorsese does here is a lot of the movie is this too, but the way he frames it so that you can almost always see Rick Danko in the background staring at Joni Mitchell, like, are you guys getting a load of this? Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. that's incredible. And, and something I really love about, you know, the filming of it and the intimacy of the way it's filmed is a movie that you kind of miss in a, a bigger kind of thing. But like these moments where they're just also in awe of each other is really cool. And I think some part of the latter part of the film that's different. It's like we've talked a lot about the performances because they're amazing. But in the latter part of the film, there's a lot of these theatrical moments, I think, that are really worth noting. First and foremost, uh, Manish Boy, Muddy Waters. The camera is one angle for 90% of the song because when I mentioned 35 millimeter earlier, um, one of the cameras didn't work. So they only had one angle to show. So that was, you know, incredibly important to capture so that you get that and then with eric clapton his guitar strap falls off and robbie has to pick up uh where he left off and continue soloing and that's like whoa it really shows you how in tune they all are together and then a little bit later with uh with caravan i think uh which is um van morrison he really brings that energy up he gives this crazy performance where he's high kicking around and doing all this kind of crazy stuff in his sequin dumpy looking suit like it's the theatrics that make it so fun in the second part the songs are great too but it's like all these kind of little concert moments that would only ever happen in a situation like this that make it super super interesting yeah i i really agree with that and it's kind of interesting how there's that that caught that in the beginning, you know, it's a lot of kind of the, the hard hitting, uh, you know, band songs. And then the second half, you're like, oh, this is like a party. Like, this feels great. And, you know, I'm glad that you mentioned the Van Morrison suit. People like to hate on Richard's yellow suit. And there's clearly a much uglier one here. I don't know yeah. why people talk about that. <laughs> for sure. For sure. I just Hello, wanted, John. I just wanted to add a, uh, a non sequitur here. Like, you know, I, I remember as, as we're watching this, I, I, I thought, that the scene before the Muddy Waters performance perfectly captured the scene of rock and roll as a whole at this time, right? Because, you know, Muddy Waters, he, he is one of the, the players that gets the ball rolling into what rock and roll was at that time. Mm -hmm. And then you can mm -hmm. sort of see in the lines after the fact that, you know, it's so significant to, to the members of the band, you know, and, and what the music means to them. So to sort of see Muddy Waters there and looking kind of old, if I might add, you know, I, I think that that is the biggest uh, way to pay homage to, to mm -hmm. the music rather than any of mm -hmm. the musicians there. That part of the movie to me felt like this is why we're here. This is why every single one of us is here. This is why Muddy Waters, who's looking old, is here. This is why we're here. You know, it's just, it's really, really powerful. And I, I 
and I can't. I wish I could remember what what was said beforehand, but I think that if, if you're gonna watch this, that's absolutely something to uh, to yeah, look out. There'd for. be no band without Money Waters, and like somebody like Levon Helm would tell you that, and like that's a lot of folks on the stage, even their contemporaries. There'd be no band without a lot of these contemporaries too, because they relied on each other, they pulled from each other constantly, and you're you hit the mark there perfectly. And Muddy Waters encapsulates that better than anybody, being the elder statesman in a lot of ways of the performances or the performers there that night. Um, I think though, you can't really talk about the last waltz without talking about Bob Dylan, who probably single-handedly is the biggest influence on the band's career as performers, as musicians, as songwriters. Um, and he really gets a significant amount of time. He gets what, three songs. Um, he gets forever young, which is something that the band did with him on planet ways, uh, the album from 74, uh, baby, let me follow you down, which is a reprise, which I think is electric. Like it is literally electric. Uh, and then it has, I shall be released, which I think, um, there's no better way to cap off a doc, like a performance than I shall be released. It's, you know, a beautiful song. You know, there's some gripes with it, I think, amongst the fans. But overall, it kind of concludes the film and brings out off all the performers on stage to really kind of give it a big last hurrah, including some cameos from Ronnie Wood and Ringo Starr. But like, Brie, for you as as a band fan too, and as and and also as a watcher of movies, a lot of people know Bob Dylan, even if they don't know the band, they're gonna know Bob Dylan. Like, what was it like seeing them for you? Like, we're seeing Bob come up on the stage to really command the stage at the end. There. Yeah, I absolutely love that moment every single time you know like i told you the first time we talked all those long months ago bob dylan was the one that kind of really introduced me to the band and so the first time i watched the last waltz to see him come out and you know at first you don't know it's him because the camera pans down and then it's him playing forever young it is gorgeous and then ripping into baby let me follow you down like it's so cool to compare that to, you know, some of the footage that we have from like Eat the Document and things like that, and even Don't Look Back, where you can see, you know, the young band members with Dylan. And then to see them all these years later is incredible, you know, and to see just everybody come together at the end for I Shall Be Released is such an incredible incredible moment you know maybe my favorite moment in the film and obviously you know i'm i'm biased i have some affinity for richard manuel so obviously i love that moment but what's really cool is they just kind of let the the camera linger on it you know you see everybody setting up and interacting at the beginning um, i tweeted about this last night but i didn't even notice until i watched watched it again last night that in the moment where richard's singing his verse you know, Joni and Neil and a couple other people are around the piano and they turn and look at him. And then everybody kind of turns around after a couple lines, except for Neil. And he just like stares at him, transfixed the whole time he's singing. And again, I, I think that's something I really have to commend Scorsese for is, you know, directing the film and, you know, at the helm and in the editing and things like that in such a way that, you have these little moments and there's always something new to discover about this film. And that's, that's what I love about it. I, I couldn't agree more with you guys. Just the, the power of these last few songs, uh, especially with Bob Dylan. Um, and I think one way that this is truly demonstrated, because for me, these aren't people that I, I, I knew everyone, you know, I didn't know everyone. 
Um, but there are a couple times where, and particularly towards the end, when they want you to be like, yeah, this, check this out. This is awesome. Where there are these super fast, like just they look so good, drive-bys almost behind the stage. And it's just, you don't know, you, you can sort of tell who's who, um, but it's just they, they, they feel so powerful. And, and for whatever reason, they're so smooth. And they look far more clear than, than anything else, I think, in, in the movie. If I remember correctly, I remember those feeling a little sharper than the rest of the shots. And I may be wrong, you know, but I just watched it for the first time yesterday. But it really stands out in my head. And I just remember thinking like, yeah, this that's when you really feel like this means something and this will always mean something, uh, especially in terms of music. And, and I just, I can't think of a, a better way to, you know, I, I think Tyrell, I think you said the same thing. I think I can't think of a better way to, to sort of wrap it up there. Um, they, they really knew what they were doing in, in terms of that experience. And that's the first time you sort of soak it all in, really. As I, I, every other shot is sort of, you know, uh, a little more intimate, like Bree's been saying, that, that they're telling the, the smaller stories in between these people. And this is the first one where it's just like, hey, you know, you know everything that's going on here. You know all the smaller connections. Now, here's your chance to soak it up. Here's your chance to soak it up before the screen goes black and, and you go home. And it's this, it's it's no different than than if you were at that concert. So I think that's that really really says something in what they were doing. Um, I, I love it. I, I absolutely love it. Um, one other thing I want to mention here too, and th these are the last of my notes. So so I'll be wrapping up on my end. But you know, I know you guys could, could go, you guys could out talk me. <laughs> uh, but the the last thing that that I sort of noticed was. At the end of the documentary, there's one shot with one of the members of the band, and it's the only shot in the movie that feels like an actual documentary shot, like an actual documentary interview shot um, compared to everything else. Because everything else is just like, yeah, let's shoot them laying down on the couch. Or, yeah, let's shoot them playing pool. It's just you're hanging out with them. But then, you know, you go from soak it up to here's a formal send off. You know, yeah, we, 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 you got it. You, like. It's it's here and it's going to be here. That's an interesting point. The interview portions of the film, and that's and 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 how everything kind of felt a little staged, right? And then you kind of just at the end of it, like you're all you know, you're exasperated. It's over. You can give the sigh of relief or whatever. If you're the band members or if you're an audience, you're like, whoa, what did I just watch? And then you get just this very raw moment at the end, and it's like, okay, wow, this is this is it. I'm I'm done. Like this is. This is crazy. So yeah, I think you said it really well there, John. And just hearing your perspective for me as somebody who just watched it for the first time with not a lot of context, it's always great to hear it, how the film touched you or your particular vision or how you saw it. Um, so it works, I think. I, I think you enjoyed it, right? So it worked, it did its job, right? Hey, I'm sold. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to download some playlists or some albums here, you know, so long as Brie allows it now that the podcast is is wrapping up here. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I have lots of playlists for you, John, anytime you need. <laughs> Any closing remarks from the two of you? Uh, for me, it's just, you know, I think The Last Waltz, uh, if, you, if you're not a fan of the band or if you don't know the music that well, that's fine. Um, 
you can just watch it and enjoy it. It's a, it's a very remarkable film on its own. It's something that if you're interested in that period of filmmaking or the type of filmmaking, it's something worth checking out if you want to get into Scorsese in a certain way. You know, somebody, you know, not everybody loves mobster films or like some of the violent type things he does. Like, I don't know why you wouldn't because they're amazing. But if you don't, uh, this is a great way into some of his other work because he's done a lot of great documentary work, uh, other bands, Stones, uh, George Harrison, other things like that. This is a great way uh, to enter. And it's a good something to put on on a, you know, a Sunday, you know, afternoon, you're just trying to hang out, you're trying to enjoy yourself. This is a great film to put on. Uh, it's, it's something that you can revisit and you can enjoy and you can learn something new every time. And if you like music, I don't, I don't know if there's really much of a better film than this. Yeah, I, I heartily concur uh, with everything there. And I think there's no way, you know, if you go into it with an open heart, that you can listen to the band and not have them change you or, or stick with you in some way. And I think this film, you know, for, for some of its, its narrative issues, is a great testament to just their music and to the fact that I think they're appropriately called the band because they were always so willing to back and to help other people as well as do their own music that they are, they are the epitome of a band. They are the band. And the last waltz is a testament to that in an incredible package that it's amazing that we get to experience in the way that we do. I think that's a, a Brie, you always kill it with the closing remarks, man. I, I gotta say. Um, so I'm not going to add any more to that. Um, Tyrell, I, I know I want to thank you on behalf of, uh, of myself, and I'm sure Bree will concur. Uh, thank you for coming on. You know, you offered some great perspectives. You, you taught me a lot today, so hopefully uh, there are some other people out there that will learn a little uh, thing or two about the band as well. So be sure to, to check out Tyrell's um, podcast, uh, The Band, A History, uh, and you can hear more about The Last Waltz over there. Uh, you know, thank you for coming on, Tyrell. Oh, thank, thank you, guys. Thank you guys for having me. I always appreciate the chance to come on and uh, talk about the band or the last waltz. And uh, yeah, uh, hopefully we can do it again soon. And in terms of Brie, you know, you'd be sure to check out her archive. Brie, if you'd like to add a little bit uh, about that before we rack up, wrap up. Sure. I am always down to shamelessly plug this. Uh, in case you haven't noticed by this point, if you don't already know, I run something called the Richard Manuel Archive on Twitter, uh, dedicated to the life and legacy of Richard Manuel, who, as Tyrell uh, mentioned earlier, really the soul of the band. Um, so check that out on Twitter at Manual Archive uh, and learn some more about this awesome guy. Yeah, and with that, be sure to check out, you know, The Last Waltz. Uh, it's on Pluto TV and Tubi, two of which I have never heard about. But, uh, you know, if it's a great home for The Last Waltz, it might be a great home for you. So be sure to check those out. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next time. Thank you.